This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Eddie Lee Whitson, card number 330, pitcher for the San Diego Padres. Looking forward to this one, and why are we talking about Eddie today? Trivia question for you, Matt. Who was the best pitcher by wins above replacement in the National League in the years 1989 to 1990? So over that two-year stretch, who was the top pitcher? Well, given the nature of the show, I'm guessing the answer is Eddie Whitson, but I would have guessed someone like Greg Maddox. And that would have been a good guess. Eddie Lee Whitson was the number one pitcher in the National League in wins above replacement in 1989 and 90 with 13.5. So he had a 7.0 war season and a 6.5 war season. Right behind him was his teammate, Bruce Hurst, a guy who I barely remembered playing for the Padres, but they had two really good pitchers over that two-year stretch. A pitcher for the 1989 Padres won the Cy Young Award, and it was neither of those two pitchers. It was their closer, Mark Davis. But Eddie Whitson had a few moments that we remember him for, one of which involves Pasquale Perez and a shirtless Eddie Whitson. But he also had a couple other fights and some redemption when he returned to San Diego for that run in 89-90. I'm going to San Diego next week for a little bit of beach time. So if you see a guy in the Taco Bell San Diego Padres hat walking around La Jolla, I I can't be the only one, right? So we wanted to go with a Padres player, and it helps that he has a Sabre bio written by Mike Huber. So thank you, Mike Huber, for this really good Sabre bio. And let's talk about Eddie Lee Whitson. Sounds great. Let's go to the front of card 330, and we have Eddie Whitson. We have him in profile. This is an action shot as he's on the mound. I would say a pretty awkward look for an action shot at first. His glove hand, his left arm, because of the incredible ballistics that are going on when throwing a baseball 80 to 100 miles an hour. In this case, it kind of looks like he's doing a a weird chicken wing kind of dance. You can see that he is really about to whip this pitch. So it is a strange combination of form, of physics. Looks like it could be in a science book. He's throwing a palm ball here. Late in Eddie's career, he developed this palm ball after a cut on his finger led him to hold the ball further back in his hand. And it became a pretty effective pitch for Eddie. Yeah, these are the not quite as interesting brown uniforms. I like the current brown San Diego Padres uniforms as well as the Taco Bell hat. But this Mm. one is the more boring brown and orange. Eddie also has a brown sweatshirt underneath pinstripes it is very video game white and brown i would also say because of the pinstripes and his form and his very tight mustache it has a very old time look to it as well it could have been from a hundred years past here's eddie lee whitson about to throw his famous spoon ball the (laughs) The pictures of Eddie from his time on the Pirates are pretty iconic. He has some big bushy hair underneath the pillbox Pirates cap. This one, he has more of a clean cut haircut, but his 70s look was pretty wild. Mm. Kept that mustache, though. Yeah, good mustache. 
Let's go to the back of 330. We have Eddie Whitson, 6'3", 195, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Pirates in the sixth round of 1974. Born May 19, 1955, in Johnson City, Tennessee, with a home in Dublin, Ohio. His given name at birth was Eddie Lee Whitson. So the Eddie on this card is not a diminutive from Edward. It is Eddie is his given name. Johnson City, Tennessee is in northeastern Tennessee. About 30,000 people lived there when Eddie was born. 70,000 people live there now. Famous Johnson citizens, David Cole, one of the C's of CNC Music Factory, and Steve Spurrier spent much of his childhood there. While he was born in Johnson City, Ed grew up and went to school in Irwin, which is in nearby Unicoi County, Tennessee. And Irwin is perhaps most famous for an elephant execution. And apologies, this is a sad story, but in 1916, a circus elephant named Mary killed her trainer and then she was hanged. So they hanged an elephant. This was the chosen execution method because the animal survived being shot multiple times. So she was hanged by a railroad car crane. And this hanging was the subject of songs, plays, and a book. The book is called The Day They Hung the Elephant by Charles Edwin Price. And this has been referenced in a lot of different things, but that's a very strange thing for a town to be known for. They also have a really bad history of race relations in Irwin, Tennessee. In 1918, a black man was murdered and his body was lit on fire after an alleged crime. And after that, all of the black residents of Irwin were forcibly removed by white citizens. And the town was then known as a sundown town, a place where people of color were not welcome after sundown. And the town remains overwhelmingly white. While there are 6,000 people who live there, there are only 19 black residents in the town of Irwin. So a very sad history of race relations in Irwin. So that is the, the context that Ed grew up in, in this very white Southern town. And he was one of nine kids born to Starlin and Anna May. Eddie's siblings were Bradford, Buford, Eugene, Dennis, Martha, Trula, Randy, and Susan. His dad, Starlin, was a logger, but he left the family when Ed was seven. And the family didn't have much money, and so Eddie would help out however he could to help his mom support the family. He went to Unicoi County High School, where he was a star pitcher. And in 1974, the Pirates picked him in the sixth round of the draft. The Pirates offered him a $5,000 bonus check, which was by far the most money that Eddie had ever seen or even imagined. And so he signed with the Pirates. And to this point, he is the only Unicoi high school player to make it to Major League Baseball. He started with the Pirates Rookie League and went 1-4 with a 4.3 ERA in eight games, and then moved up to single A ball at Charleston, where his ERA went up to 5.07, and he had a record of 8-15. His whip was nearly 1.7, so lots of hits and walks. In 1976, he went to Salem, which is still single A, but a higher league, cut both his whip and his ERA significantly. He was 15-9 and record with a 2.53 ERA and struck out 186 and 203 innings. He's finally growing up. He was now 21 years old, and so gaining some experience, learning his pitchers better, and growing into his frame. One opposing manager said he pitched good enough to be in the big leagues tonight after a 10-strikeout one-run performance, and he made the all-star team that season in 1976 in single A, and then was invited to Pirate Spring Training in 1977. 
That's a big jump from A-ball. He was initially assigned to AAA Columbus. He started out slow, losing nine in a row, at which point he decided to switch his number. And then he won the next two games, and that took his record to three and nine. He turned it around, finishing with an eight and 13 record and a 3.34 ERA in 175 innings. So maybe that number change put him on a good path. It earned him a late season call up, appearing in five games for the Pirates. Two of those were starts. He went 1 and 0 in 15 innings, had a 118 ERA plus. So that's the first line on that card. But he starts again the next year at AAA Columbus, getting seven starts, pitching pretty well, gets called up again and appears in 43 games in relief. Again, pretty effective, five and six, four saves, and a 114 ERA plus. 1979 was the We Are Family World Series champ seasons, and Ed was on that big league staff. He was a spot starter, started seven games, and came on in relief for 12 games before the third-place Pirates decided to make a huge trade. They sent Eddie, Fred Brining, and Al Holland to the Giants in exchange for Bill Madlock, Lenny Randall, and Dave Roberts. Bill Madlock, the big name here, two-time NL batting champ at that point, fills in at third base, allowing Phil Garner to move to second base. The Pirates go from six and a half games out of first to first place by August 5th. So within a little over a month, they make a big run and they win the pennant and go to the World Series, ultimately winning. Eddie was going to be a regular starter in San Francisco. He said, the only thing I want to do is to prove that I'm as good a pitcher as Bill Madlock is a hitter. Bill Madlock, I think, went on to win another batting title. Eddie, it took him a little while, but he he ended up pretty good. This first season, he was an okay starter, 5-8 and eight with a 3.95 ERA and 17 starts. He also got in a fight with a teammate who was questioning his hitting ability, so he wasn't there to replace Bill Madlock, but shortstop Roger Metzger suggested that Ed should practice his bunting rather than taking on <laughs> Big swings. Ed didn't take kindly to this. He did have a career 125 average and 297 OPS, so he maybe should have focused on bunting. Instead, he got mad. The players argued for a while, and when they got back to the clubhouse, Ed had enough and punched Roger Metzger in the face. He knocked him out, and the team downplayed the incident. Ed said it was just horsing around. In this picture on the front of the card, he does not look like a man to be trifled with. He's got a determined face. Uh, I could imagine this guy punching somebody. Definitely. And that would not be the last fist fight in Ed's career, as we've alluded to. Ed had a 5-8 and eight record for the Giants with a 3.95 ERA that first year. Overall, he was 7-11 and 11 with a 4.1 ERA, which is a 90 ERA+. plus. He was awarded a share of the postseason bonus for the World Series, so he got $7,000, which is a nice return for not winning a World Series, but being on the team at the beginning of the season. He also got married in the offseason of 1979. 1980 would be his first season as a full-time starter in the majors, and it didn't start out great. He was 2-7 and seven by the first week of June, but then rattled off five wins in a row, including three complete games. He was 500 at the All-Star break and somehow made the All-Star team. Vita Blue was named to the All-Star team from the Giants, but shortly before the game, he was put on the disabled list with a herniated disc. So Ed was named to the team in his place. 
He didn't play in the game, but it must have been a fun weekend to be with the All-Star team. In one article I read, he had to skip his friend's wedding to go to this All-Star game, and then he ends up not playing. But everybody at the wedding back in Irwin, Tennessee, had a TV out. So the groom is sitting there watching the All-Star game, and his bride is like, come on, come dance, come dance. And he says, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. So there's a, a, a fun scene there that seemed like something out of maybe like Ricky Bobby. Yeah, or out of Eddie Lee. He closed the season 11-13 and 13 with a 3.1 ERA. In the strike shortened 1981, Ed was inconsistent and also battling injuries. It turns out he hyperextended his elbow. Bunting. He should have heeded that advice, done some more practice. Maybe, maybe he got too good at bunting. He didn't miss a turn in the rotation, luckily, but he was less effective. After that injury, his ERA was 4.6 and overall had a 4.02 ERA with a 6-9 and nine record. And after the season, he was traded to Cleveland for Dwayne Kuyper. Cleveland already had a full rotation, so they mostly used Ed in relief. He wasn't bad. He actually had one of his better ERA pluses, 127 in 107 innings. But Whitson wasn't happy with his performance. He wasn't happy with his situation in Cleveland. He said, as far as I'm concerned, I never had a chance. It was totally frustrating. Last year was a waste for both sides. And at the end of the season, Cleveland trades him to San Diego for Broderick Perkins and Juan Eichelberger on November 18th, which are two very good names, but two players that that didn't work out for Cleveland. Cleveland's GM said of this trade that they traded two fives for a 10 or two tens for a five or a 10 for two fives. I can't remember the exact quote, but it, <laughs> it was something that didn't quite make sense because Eddie Lee went on to be a pretty good starter for the Padres. Juan Eichelberger and Broderick Perkins did not do anything for Cleveland. That was November of 1982. In the 1983 season, Eddie had a rough year, pulling muscles in his rib cage and missing spring training. Then in April, he injured his knee, tearing cartilage, which led to arthroscopic surgery. Ed said hours after the surgery that he felt great and could already walk on that injured leg. It's... It seems very, very ambitious, but he did come back by the end of May and ended the year five and seven with an 82 ERA plus. He learned late in that season that he was tipping his pitches. So after making some changes, he was able to limit his home runs allowed. Also in this season, he cut his finger opening a soda bottle and that forced him to hold the ball farther back in his hand and develop that palm ball that we see on the front of the card. Going into 1984, this ends up being a fantastic season for the Padres, their first playoff appearance, and Ed had a really good year. But he was also involved in an incident that we discussed in the Pasquale Perez episode. Runs the glove and Leffords delivers inside, and I think he's going to be gone too. Here come the Braves. They are going after Leffords. For the fourth straight time, Perez coming to the plate, and we've got one going now. And there are some hot-tempered individuals out there. Pasquale Perez not involved there. Well, I'll tell you what. This about as good a little battle as you're going to see. We've got about five separate fights going on out in the field. It all started really when Wiggins got hit with the first pitch of the game. Since then, no fewer than six pitches have been 
thrown in the vicinity of Perez. It's happened every time Perez came to the plate. When he came to the plate in the second inning, Whitson threw the first pitch behind him, was issued a warning. In the fourth inning, Perez came to the plate. Whitson threw three straight pitches low and inside to Pasquale. That's when he was ejected, along with Dick Williams by Steve Ripley. In the sixth inning, when Perez came to the plate, Greg Booker's first pitch came way in on him. Out went Booker and acting manager Ozzie Virgil. And now here in the eighth inning, the first pitch hits Perez. Kroll has been ejected along with Craig Lefferts. The third time Pasquale ran away from the plate and then was defending himself with the bat because he thought that there was going to be a benches clearing brawl. I have no idea why Atlanta left him in the game. He ends up striking out that at bat and then comes up again in the fourth inning Eddie's still on the mound and again misses him multiple times. After three way inside pitches, Eddie gets tossed along with manager Dick Williams. They keep throwing at Pasquale Perez. They didn't hit him until the eighth inning. And that led to everything popping off. There's a lot here. We discussed it before. Champ Summers and injured Bob Horner. Eddie had been in the clubhouse and he came out shirtless and was screaming at fans, pointing at fans. All in all, 13 players, two coaches, two managers were ejected, and five fans were arrested. It was a bona fide brouhaha. Other than that, Ed was pretty good that year, 14-8 and eight with a 3.24 ERA, which was a 111 ERA plus. For the National League West champs, they go into the playoffs winning 92 games and finishing 12 games ahead of second place Atlanta. In that NLCS, the Cubs won the first two games. And Eddie is on the mound for game three. In a best of five series, every game was a must win at this point. And this was the first home playoff game in San Diego. There were nearly 60,000 fans in the stands. And Ed was great. He only allowed five hits in eight innings in a seven to one victory. The Padres win the next two to earn a spot in the World Series against the heavily favored Tigers. The Tigers win game one and Ed gets the start in game two. Unfortunately, he lasted 17 pitches. In those 17 pitches, he gave up five singles, three runs, and got two outs. He was pulled for Andy Hawkins. The Padres came back and won that game, but that was their only win in the series, and Ed didn't get a chance to pitch again in the World Series. After that good season, Ed was a free agent. He was back home at Dublin, Ohio, and got a call to meet with the team owner, some guy named George Steinbrenner landed at the Columbus airport and met with Ed for 45 minutes. The Yankees offered him five years, $4.4 million. Meanwhile, the Padres had offered him four years at $2.8 million. So a pretty big difference for him. He told a friend, I don't like New York. I really don't want to play for New York, but I can't pass up that security. I've got to do it for my family. And since his father left town when he was a kid, Eddie had always helped his mother and helped his family support the family. And some of his friends just had a bad feeling about Eddie going to the Yankees. But he said, I'm crazy not to go. So heading into 1985, Eddie is a Yankee. His first two games, he gave up 13 runs. <laughs> Only five of them were earned, but it's still not a good feeling. He was one in six on June 6th and had an ERA over six. And that led fans to start booing and be verbally abusive and send him hate mail and threats. Oh, my God. It was so bad that he stopped bringing his wife to the stadium. He also had a small daughter at this point. I think she was two or three. 
And before road trips, he would send his family to Ohio and they would return to New York the day after he did just so that he could be cautious to make sure that nothing was at their home, that nobody was waiting for them. He was really scared of what might happen. People got really worked up about Eddie and and he got some really uh, nasty messages about it. He did turn his season around slightly, finishing the season with a 10 and 8 record and a 4.88 ERA. But that rough start and ups and downs also put him in conflict with very even-tempered, you know, pretty chill dude, Billy Martin. This was the fourth of Billy Martin's five terms as Yankees manager. And late in September, Billy skipped Ed in the rotation in Baltimore. Martin told reporters that Eddie was having arm trouble, but Eddie said he never felt better. The next evening at the team hotel, Oh, and, and just to be clear, the night before, Billy Martin got in a fight with a groom on his wedding night at the same hotel. <laughs> but this night, Eddie confronts Billy Martin in the lounge. I'm sure there were cocktails imbibed after midnight. And on this night, that confrontation led to some shoving and punches and wrestling. Eddie also kicked Billy a few times after knocking him down, including one to the groin that led Billy to announce, quote, now I'm going to kill you. Ed was taken to the basement and put on an elevator and Billy was put in an elevator on the main floor. Unfortunately, both elevators stopped on the third floor. They both got out and started fighting again. This is just a movie setup. This is just a movie setup. All of this could be the, the Eddie Lee Whitson story. The Eddie Lee Whitson story is a movie waiting to happen here. Finally, they were separated, led to their rooms. Billy Martin still tried to get Joe Torrey to get Eddie Whitson to meet him in the parking lot. Martin, at this point, had a broken arm, probably from blocking one of the kicks. Eddie is sent home. He wasn't suspended, but he was skipped in the rotation, according to Martin, quote, to avoid being booed. <laughs> but Eddie was given a start in a must-win game. So late in this season, the Yankees are battling the Blue Jays for the AL East. They have a must-win game on October 4th. So on 18 days rest, Eddie Whitson is put into pitch, and he pitched well for four-plus innings. The Yankees beat the Blue Jays to keep their season alive, and then they lost the next day to give the Jays the AL East. But it wasn't Ed's fault. Martin was fired at the end of the season, and Eddie stuck around. He's Still just finishing his first season of that five-year deal. Yeah, in 1986, not much better to start out. The Yankees decided that Whitson would only start on the road, <laughs> which kind of reduces your value if you're only going to play on the road. He was used in blowouts intermittently. He had a 5-2 and two record with an ERA over 7 for the first half of the season in just 14 appearances. Ed wasn't happy. He said, you can't get your ERA down if you're not being used. But if he would play at home, the fans would boo him, and the booing was really getting to him. He said, it's like working in an office, and your boss comes in and says, you suck after you've tried your best. Now multiply that by 50,000 bosses, all of them telling you that you suck, and imagine what that feels like. Yeah, definitely. That's We've all been terrible. there, Matt. Yeah, we've <laughs> all been there. Yeah, he just described Twitter. But <laughs> but new manager Lou Pinella really didn't know what to do. He couldn't find a good spot for Ed. He just became useless here. Even when I called for him in the bullpen, he'd get real fidgety. He was worrying about everything except getting batters out. 
So July 9th, the Yankees and Whitson are both done with each other. Ed went to Steinbrenner and begged him to trade him. And Steinbrenner, to his credit, said, When I signed Ed, I promised him that if things don't work out, I'd do my damnedest to send him to where he wanted. And Steinbrenner kept that promise. He sends Ed to the Padres in exchange for Tim Stoddard. And the Yankees agreed to eat the remaining three and a half years of Ed's contract. Ed appreciated that trade and appreciated Steinbrenner. He said, a lot of people thought George Steinbrenner was a bad man, but I'll tell you right now, I respect him. He's as honest as any man I've ever met. So they made that deal in Columbus in the airport and Steinbrenner stuck to it and traded him when Eddie needed to get out. So heading back to San Diego, the return wasn't immediately successful. In 17 appearances, he had an ERA over 5.5, and the Padres went 2-15 and 15 in those games. 1987 was a rough year for the Padres as well. They went 65-97. and 97. Ed did have a winning record through the first half of the season, 10-7 and 7 with a 4.76 ERA. But the back half of the year, he didn't win another game the rest of the year. Finishing 10 and 13 with a 4.73 ERA. So, just what a terrible run to end that season. His ERA was about the same. He just had really bad luck that second half of the season. And a sign of his year, a couple starts in June, he had a complete game four hit shutout June 12th at San Francisco. San Francisco, a good team, goes on to win the NL West. The next start, he gives up six in four innings. Next start after that, a complete game two hitter gives up one run. So just really inconsistent game to game, couldn't put a run together of consistent low run starts. I don't see any black ink on this card, but it does look like he was a league leader. Yes, he led the league in home runs allowed with 36. (laughs) That was a career high. He pitched over 200 innings for the first time since 1980. He was in a place where he wanted to be. So at least his mindset was a little bit better, but he had a pretty rough year and and never really gave up close to that 36 home runs in another season in his career. That was the last line on this card. In 1988, the Padres were over 500 and Eddie was slightly better. At the very least, he cut the home runs allowed in half. He did pitch over 200 innings again and won 13 games. But as so often is the case, that 13 and 11 record was misleading. This time... His second half of the year was much better than the first. The first half of the year, he had an ERA at 4.7. The second half, his ERA was only 2.7. A tale of two halves, and he said that that second half was the best that he ever pitched, with a whip right around one, three complete games, and a shutout. Ends the season on a high note, carries that confidence into two remarkable seasons as a 34- and 35-year-old pitcher. And the Padres had a very good team in 1989. They won 89 games. They were never in first place, but they made a run at it, finishing three games behind the Giants. Through May, Eddie was 8-2 with a 2.27 ERA. After that, he went 8-9, but his ERA was still 2.88, still really good. On the season, he was 16-11 with a 2.66 ERA. That's a 132 ERA plus. And his Wins above replacement, he was valued at 6.5, nearly double his career high to that point. Opponents hit 235 against him. He finished tied for second in pitching war in the National League, fourth in ERA plus with 132, sixth in whip 
and tied for sixth in wins and ninth in walks allowed. And so he's not allowing as many base runners, not giving up as many home runs. And if you look at the top players on this Padres team, the top two in wins above replacement are Ed and Bruce Hurst, both at 6.5, ahead of stars, Hall of Famers, Roberto Alomar is on that team, Jack Clark, Tony Gwynn, Benito Santiago, and the 1989 Cy Young winner, Mark Davis. He was the Padres' closer, had a really good year, valued at 4.4 war, pretty good for a closer. Whitson and Hurst didn't even get Cy Young votes. Their records weren't spectacular. They were overshadowed by their teammate closer. Second place in that Cy Young vote was the only 20-game winner in the National League, Mike Scott. Three Cubs got votes, two Giants got votes, Big Daddy and Scott Gereltz. So it helped to play for a winner. And Eddie and Bruce Hurst got ignored in the awards voting. In 1990, the Padres weren't as good as they were in 1989. This was a team that only won 75 games. But 1990's Ed Whitson was even better. He turned 35 that year. And in a 2019 list of the top individual Padres seasons of all time, Ed's was 19th. His 1990 performance where he went 11-6 and with a 2.51 ERA at the All-Star break didn't make the all-star team, but for the season, went 14-9 and with a 2.60 ERA. That's an ERA plus of 148, pitching 228 innings. He had 20 starts where he gave up two or fewer runs. Just a really a dominating performance as a starting pitcher. Yeah, the last two months of the season, in 11 starts, he was 2-4 and four with a 2.39 ERA. So just some hard luck losses, and again, does not show up on... Any Cy Young ballot, he led the National League in pitching wins above replacement at seven, ranked second in walks allowed per nine innings, third in ERA, seventh in innings pitched, tied for seventh in wins, and tenth in whip. And he also hit the first home run of his career in 1990. A really great season, one of the top 20 seasons in Padres history, fourth best pitching war season, zero Cy Young votes. This year, there were multiple 20-game winners, so Ed's 14-win season numerically gets ignored by a lot of the writers. Doug Drabeck was the near-unanimous choice as the ace of the Pirates. Eddie Whitson does get named Padres Pitcher of the Year, so that's, that's something. That's a highly coveted award. 1991, he was the opening day starter, but he only pitched in 13 games due to injury. He had shoulder surgery in July— and came back for one game, and then had a torn ligament in his elbow. So he ended the season with a 4-6 and six record and a 5.03 ERA, and the Padres did not renew his contract. 1992, he didn't want to be done. He tried to come back with the Padres in spring training, yet more torn ligaments required him to either have surgery or extensive rest. He really fought it till the very end. He didn't want to call it quits. He said, no, not yet. I won't do that until the very end. And finally, it was the very end. <laughs> he went back home to Dublin, Ohio, called it a career. So closing the book on Eddie Lee Whitson, 15 seasons in the major leagues, a record of 126 and 123, ERA of 3.79, which was a 98 ERA plus, pitching in 452 games, with 1,266 strikeouts, a few memorable fights, one NLCS win, one all-star appearance. How about in retirement? He went back to Dublin, and I couldn't find much about what he did. 
think he had a pretty quiet life. He and his wife, Kathleen, had two kids, a daughter, Jennifer, and a son, Drew. When Drew was in high school, Eddie approached the high school team, Dublin Jerome High School, about coaching. And he became a volunteer pitching coach. And he had opportunities to coach in the minors, but he enjoyed working with the kids at Dublin Jerome High School and playing golf in his spare time. So, David, this is a pitcher that looked like an old-timer on his card that had a couple surprise seasons, but otherwise just seemed like a real badass fighter. <laughs> so, now that we've looked at him a little bit more, what do we think? We came into this knowing that Eddie Lee Whitson was the shirtless fighter at Fulton County Stadium. But then there's this other side, and that is a, a vulnerable side of Eddie Whitson in New York. And for a long time, and even to this day, when a player comes to New York and struggles, Eddie Whitson's name will come up. He was one of the highest paid pitchers in baseball, but he just never got comfortable pitching in Yankee Stadium. He said that as a kid, he always dreamed about pitching at Yankee Stadium and playing for the Yankees, that that was every kid's dream in the 60s and 70s. His record of 15 and 10 doesn't look so bad compared to some of his other seasons where he's under 500, but his ERA plus was 75. He just didn't feel safe and he didn't feel comfortable. It didn't help to have Billy Martin as your manager, probably, if you're the kind of guy who might throw punches with your manager. But even after he left the Yankees, when he returned as a visiting player against the Mets, there were still threats. Eddie may have come off as a tough guy, but he was scared for his family and scared for his own well-being. When he went back as a visiting player, he had security and the Major League Baseball president's security was with him when he went into the stadium. George Steinbrenner respected Eddie for the way that he acted in New York. Aside from that fight, of course, he said, I knew what he was going through. He had problems with Billy Martin, but lots of guys here have had problems with Billy. But all of the other things he was going through, I couldn't keep him here. You don't do those things to people. I know things didn't work out for Ed, but never once did he complain. He took a lot of BS from a lot of people, and he took his share of slings and arrows and misfortune. I'll always respect Ed. He never whimpered to me or made excuses. I know we didn't get what we should have in return for Ed, but he's a tremendous person. Whatever good things come to him in this game, he deserves. And so then he returns to, to San Diego, a place where he had success that to this day is a much smaller media market than New York. And there's much less glare, even though there's only one major professional sports team in San Diego. It's just there's less focus on the Padres. Even though in 1984 he was good and that team was great, he was nowhere near as good as he was in those 89 and 90 performances. And Ed said, I've got New York to thank every one of those fans. Every day I worked out over the winter, I kept thinking about them because I want to prove every damn one of them wrong. They thought I wouldn't be back. They thought I was washed up. Now look at me. And he goes on to have the best two-year wins above replacement stretch of any pitcher in Padres history. For those two seasons, he was the best pitcher in the National League. And for the Padres, Whitson had a career 77 and 72 record. Most of that success came in that four-year run after he flamed out in New York. He ranks fourth on the Padres' career list in wins, third in career innings pitched, seventh in Ks, sixth in pitching war. And there's really, I think, a lesson to be learned here that he may be remembered as a failure in New York. But I think there's a couple things. One is he wasn't afraid to just say, I can't do this and I'm out of here and I need to go somewhere where I'm comfortable. And I think that we oftentimes remember guys for their worst moments. 
And Eddie had a few of those. And we came into this remembering him as a shirtless screaming guy in the dugout and come out of it thinking of him as kind of thoughtful guy who cares about his family, guy who wants the best for his family, who was really hurt by some of the things that were said to him in New York and just maybe couldn't deal with the spotlight in New York. Yeah, a real redemption story here and certainly a more full picture than we got the first time we brought up his name early in the series. So really appreciate that. And thank you, David, for that. Thank you, Mike Huber, for this Sabre bio. Thank you to you at home. If you've got your shirt off and you're ready for a fight, bring it on on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week. 